Well, I am so glad that you are here on this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Sunday here in Southern California. I don't know the better place to be other than church, but someday we need to go outside, I think, and have it. So I'm glad that I'm here, too. I don't know if you know, last week I was teaching all week uh, in Oxford at Wadham College, a part of the university there, at a seminary course uh, about the church. And I just got back in yesterday afternoon, so already I was kind of on this pity trip. You know, oh, I'm just so tired, there must be somebody else. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't preach about the church and teach about the church and then not show up. So I tried to get over that. I thought, jet lag, that's not as bad as what these people in First Peter were facing, so I'd better, better be here. And I am so glad, I'm so glad that I am here. And I didn't want to miss, oh, thank you. I, I didn't want to miss this um, last service in First Peter. I had no idea how the Lord would speak to me personally through the text, and I know that so many of you have written me that it's been something that God has used powerfully. And now we come to the very end. I've thought that all through the series, people have gone through my door at the end and shaken my hand and said, you know, these times of remembering that how the greatness of God that he's sufficient for anything, that Jesus suffered, and even the greatest work he did was done in the midst of bearing our sins. All this has been so good. But when we leave, we go encouraged, but we feel like we walk right out into a battle or even into a war. <laughs> Going back in sometimes families where you're the only believer or workplace where it's hard to live you know, God's way or just so many things that we have to face in this world. I'll tell you, if you would say that to Peter, I think he would say, that's exactly what it's like. He kept saying that wherever we go, whatever time we live, that uh, we're going to feel like aliens and strangers. And they were going through, these Christians to whom he first wrote in First Peter, they were living in what's now Turkey, were going through some really, really tough times. I, I've tried to imagine it this way. Uh, they would come into church just like you and I are doing. Uh, they would sing songs of praise about the greatness and power of God, just as we've done. They make sure they get their lives right with God, knowing that they've fallen short, you know, in the past week, just like we have done. They hear God's Word, and I'm sure they would read through First Peter, helping us to understand how to view these trials and how we're supposed to live. Sometimes they would have communion, and in communion they would remember the cross, Remember that Jesus was not overcome by the difficulties when He bore our sins on the cross and overcame it through a resurrection so that God can use trials. They would hear all of that, but then they'd go out and face extreme pressure, losing their jobs, being ostracized by their families. And very soon after he wrote this letter, some of them would be giving their lives specifically because of their faith in Jesus. And so now we come to how I read 1 Peter 5, the text that Adam just read for us. Some people say it's so fragmented, so many different thoughts that are there. But the way I read it is this. It's Peter calling himself a shepherd. Did you notice that? As a pastor caring for the people who are going through tough times. Taking a few moments and in his last words, giving them some instructions about how they are to live in these difficult, difficult times. And what I have found is that the instructions he gave them are just as important for us here in uh, Southern California as they were for them. So what does he say? Knowing that we're going to go out using this image of a battle. Maybe I could have that. Just one. 
<laughs> Cut that off the tape. <laughs> okay. There. <clears throat> now, I'll stop so we can get that rolling again. All right. Knowing that they were going to go out into the battle, <laughs> he gives them these three instructions. First of all, he talks about what's supposed to happen when you go to church. What's supposed to be happening into this family. And the first instructions, and I wanted Adam to read the text because he's the chair of our spiritual leadership so that he could hear it and, and obey it, Adam. So, <clears throat> first instruction is spiritual leaders. Be caring and faithful servants of the people. Look at the way it puts it. Be shepherds, Peter the shepherd said, of God's flock. Be shepherds of those who are entrusted to your care. Watch over them and serve them. Now, any of you who have ever gone into a battle, especially military people who are here, you know that one of the most important things is to have good leadership. That leadership needs to be morally good, needs to be visionary, needs to take their job seriously, dare not be lazy. <clears throat> and in this battle that you and I are in, one of the things we need the most is good leadership. But I'll tell you, it must have been hard for people to be leaders in that church. <laughs> because, you know, they were being oppressed. Boy, I'm having some... <clears throat> there we go. They were being oppressed uh, back in those days. And soon, people would be put, uh, being put to death for their faith. And the very first ones who would have to give their lives would be the leadership of the church. And so, Peter comes to them and said, Still... When people are living in tough times, <clears throat> they need to come into the church family and they need to have people that they know watch for them, care for them, and that this is a high calling to lead the people of God. And he gives three. I called them warnings, but they really are both positive and negative. <clears throat> Don't do this, but do that. What does he say? The first warning is this. It is a warning against an, oh, I'll do it if I've got to do it attitude. Oh, I'll do it if I've got to do it attitude. That, do you know what I'm talking about here? An, an attitude of ingratitude. The way he puts it, not because you must, but because you are willing, according to God's will. Now listen to me here. God tells us that the leadership in a local church, whether that would be a pastor or a ministry council person in our church or a division leader or a teacher, or any place of responsibility in a church is a high, high calling and a great, great privilege. Why? Because God is doing a work in this world. Do you believe that? There is something God is doing throughout this world. And you know what the center of God's work to bring His wholeness and His message and His healing and His hope to people is? The central vehicle of God doing His work in our lives has been, is, and always will be until God finishes His work, a local church just like this one. Planted in a community where people can proclaim God's message and care for one another. You may, you may find that hard to believe. Any of us who have been in church much, we say, how could that be? All these weaknesses and frailties. And but it is. Adult churches are imperfect. And if you find a perfect one, don't go because the moment you walk in, it won't be perfect anymore. But through this imperfect vehicle with the presence of God and good leadership, God does His healing work. And that's why He says, look at it. It is God's flock. 
those in spiritual leadership, to pastors. I've been feeling this so keenly this week looking at it, praying for our leaders here too, Adam, that we would look at the people who come to this church as the flock of God, entrusted to our care, and we are responsible directly to God for the way we care about His people. And so if we go into this leadership thinking, oh man, do I have to do it? Can't there be somebody else who does this? We don't even realize the privilege that we have of being in these places. And if we go into places of leadership with those kind of ho-hum attitudes, you know what's going to happen? All the people of the church will say, this must not really be a place where God's working because it must not be worth doing if the leadership doesn't think it's worth doing. Leaders, I love how he puts it. Not because you have to, but because you are willing, knowing that you are doing God's will. In tough times, people need to come into a place where they're cared for and nurtured and know in this place we can receive the kind of strength and teaching and nourishment that sends us out ready to face whatever we face. The second warning is against a what-do-I-get-out-of-it attitude, one of greed. And what he puts it is, the way he puts it is this, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now, you know, in the early, early church, from the very first stages of the church, those who were leading the church, mostly those who were teaching the Word, were compensated so that they would have time actually to be involved in that. So this isn't a new thing. Did you know that your senior pastor gets compensated? Maybe you weren't. I see some of you look rather shocked. But it is true that that it's there. And from the earliest days, there was a danger in that. That some were getting into it just for the opportunity to be compensated. Uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 5, Paul would turn to the young pastor uh, Timothy and tell him, don't do it. Don't do it. Beware of this temptation, he says, to make godliness into something of personal gain. Now, you know that so many of you who serve or provide leadership for our church, like the rest of our elected leaders and teachers, most of them are not paid. And so sometimes when we'll have a ministry council meeting and we'll we'll wrestle with something tough and we'll stay really late, I'll try to say something like this. I think this was a good time. We need to compensate. We will double or triple your salaries for the way you serve today. Well, once again, you're here today, right? Zero times. Well, you've got it. Okay, you've got it. But I think that this admonition, to those of you who are elected leaders and not paid, also has a very strong exhortation. Because sometimes, you know, we can get into any place of authority and gain other kinds of benefits. Sometimes it's what we perceive to be a prestige to be called a leader in a group. And so uh, Peter turns and says, no, 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 not pursuing gain in any way. But I love the, the way that we are to do it. Eager, eager to serve. Because we know that people are valuable. And if our lives can count for eternity by by investing in a family where people can find wholeness and hope again, it's worth doing. And then his third warning is also so good. And it's a warning against a follow me or else attitude. Power mongering. And the way he puts it is it's not 
lording it over those entrusted to you, but it is being examples to God's flock. And when you read that, don't lord it over them. It, it reminds us specifically of the words of Jesus found in Mark chapter 10. Do you know those words? Three times as he was headed toward Jerusalem where he's gone to die, he would say, I have come to give my life. Now, I'll be resurrected again, but I have come to die. And three times the disciples around him said, we like the miracles a lot, but this death stuff, that isn't good. And, uh, and then the third time, two of them get up to him and say, I don't want to talk about the death. But when you get into Jerusalem and you set up your kingdom, which of us is going to get to sit on your right and on your left? And all the other disciples are mad at them. And you know why? Because the very best places they can get are three and four. Those two got one and two already. And Jesus turns to them. And it is as impassioned of words as I've ever read in the life of Jesus. This is what he said. You know, you've experienced this. That those who have authority in this world use that authority to lord it over their people. Not to bring shalom to their people. Not to help their people to flourish. Not so with you. I, I think he was probably pounding on the pulpit. Not so with you. For even, he said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And it wasn't just big talk. It led into a walk. He went into Jerusalem where he would give his life so that you and I could be rescued. And so when we get into leadership in the name of Jesus, it must always be a leadership that does not stand behind people and drives them. It's a leadership that either is leadership from the middle where we walk together. And sometimes when we see what God would have us to do and know that there are going to be some challenges ahead, we have to take some steps in the front and take on some of the assaults personally and ask people to come and follow us as Jesus did. Leaders, what a sobering this word is to us all. It is not going into it thinking, oh good, I get to be in the ministry council this year, so now I can be an advocate for all the people who already agree with me. No, that would never happen at Lake, would it? When you read this, you see it. He is saying, if your people are going to be ready for the lives that they're going to have to face in this world then you need to serve all of them. You need to serve. Not to lord it over them, but being an example to the flock. And then he gives this marvelous, uh, awesome reminder because the chief shepherd, the one who gave his life for us, is going to come and hold us accountable for how we have led. Oh, I feel that so often. But then this great, great promise when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So when you serve the Lord, he says it's worth doing it. It may not be easy. Soon some of these leaders would be giving their lives because they were the leaders. And they became the examples to the world. If you keep following this Jesus, that will happen to you. He says if you'll do it, you will have a crown of glory that will never fade away. Crown of glory, do you know what that is? It's exactly what you think it is. It was the reward, the greatest reward in the ancient world, given to the winners of the Olympic events. 
But this is one that will never fade away. And he turns to us and says, the hours that you spend in serving God's people and helping them to know they're provided for and equipped and helping them to know that someone in this world cares for them is something that God will reward himself. That's a word to those in spiritual leadership. It's a powerful one, don't you think? But I need to say a few words to the rest of us, all right? The last service, the microphone kicked off right at this point. And I think somebody up there said, I don't want to hear these words. But here it is. Instruction two for the battle. Church people respond willingly to your church leaders. Look at verse five. And I know in most of your versions, it says in the same way, young men submit to older men. But that's not what it's really talking about. The word translated young men is not really the word for young men. It's for those who are new, those who are not the elders. So you have the elders and you have the others. It's talking to every other church member. Church people submit to your leaders is what he says. Church people submit to your leaders. Now, are you with me here? I think that a congregational church needs to hear this word more than almost any other church in the United States and in the world. I thought I'd even get more amens than that. That was more than I got in the last service. So I already tell you, I think I said it more passionately this time. Don't you think? Because congregationalism, which is the way our polity is here, can degenerate into people thinking all of us are in authority and we don't have to submit to anyone. And when you read the Bible, you say, see that that is not true. What it's talking about is not that when you see your spiritual leaders and when you see me as a pastor or any of your ministry council people turning away from the faith of the Bible or leaving the morals of Scripture that you do not confront. But I'll tell you, when you see those things, the Bible warns us in several places, make sure that before you criticize, you have two or three witnesses. You have two or three witnesses. And it is telling us that we would never, never, never tear down our spiritual leaders. It is calling for an attitude in which each one of us longs for our pastors and spiritual leaders to lead well and to walk faithfully for God, that we can always know that you are praying, praying that we'll lead well so we can prepare all who come to this church family for whatever they face in this world. Now I'm telling you, if you have leaders who lead to serve, And all of us saying, I pray that for my leaders and we will respond, we will follow so that we can walk together out in the battle. Don't you think this church will be a beautiful place? Don't you think? Now I can almost imagine those of you who are visiting for the first time thinking, hmm, that pastor must be having some real big time trouble with these people. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's, it's not so. Maybe this is a good time to preach this message. Because I tell you, these three years that Chris and I have been here, I have felt so much your prayer and your support and your encouragement. And I want to take this time just to say thank you. Thank you. It just makes my job such such a joy because of that. But let us keep these words in mind. Because you know and I do as well that sometimes in the church we can come and in this very place where we're supposed to come and be with the family and breathe in of His presence and strength and know that there are people to care so that we can go out into that battle, sometimes the church can be a place where we're doing all the battling and we have no energy left for the real battle. May it never be here. May it never be. We need one another so desperately because this world is not an easy place to live in. 
And we need to come here so that we can sing praise to God and know that there is a family that cares so that we can go out and live for Him in this world to His glory. So those are the first instructions. The battle is going to be a rough one, but He gives us one another. Leaders, we must lead well. All, we must pray for those in leadership and walk together. That brings me to the third the third um, instruction that he gives. In any battle, one of the wisest things to do is to be prepared for the enemy. You've got to know what you're going to face, right? And look at the way he puts it in verse 8. So be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right, I can almost hear some people saying, now this pastor up there, I heard he has way too much education. There's no way he could possibly believe in a devil. Is there? So we'd be- see if anybody's perking up. So we might as well look at this. Uh, Thomas was telling me that in, in, we almost never use the D word in our church. Pops up in some songs sometimes. So what is the pastor going to say about this thing? What about this roaring lion who's out there to devour us? All right, a couple of lessons. Number one, I am convinced that there is a devil. I'm going to jump right into this struggle. Listen to me. The Bible teaches us, and I think almost all of us here agree, that this material world is not all there is. And so if, when we cross the line and believe that there is something beyond this material world, that there is a God, so that we have a living hope in this dying world, then the question is, what is that immaterial world like? Some people will say, I want to believe that there's a good immaterial world, but there can't be an evil immaterial world. But the Bible says, no, 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 that, that is wrong. There is both, and the devil is one of them. But when you get at this thing, usually I get criticisms from two different directions. One is from those who just think, I can't believe anybody in the 21st century would, would believe that sort of thing because this notion of a, of a devil or a Satan is held up to such ridicule, especially in, in the academy. And th- but on the other side, some of you, I think, will maybe complain a little bit that I don't think that the evil one is behind every one of our weaknesses and every problem in our world. I think sometimes we have picked up sort of the attitude. Do any of you remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. So that every time we do something wrong, we say, oh, it was really the evil one made me do it. Any problem out there, the devil's behind every bush seeing everything that is happening. So what is the Bible saying? Uh, C.S. Lewis really helps me with this. In his introduction to screw tape letters, he says that the problem in talking, and this was a professor at Cambridge University. So I'm why did I say that? Just so that you'll know that I'm not the only one who holds to this. All right. Um, He said there are two errors that we fall into in this belief in the devil. One is he called superstition, and the other one, substition. Superstition and substition. That we come to the place of overbelief or underbelief in spiritual realities. Superstition. There are some people that start to think almost that there are two gods in this world one good, one bad. And that the devil, like, like the God who is our Father, is omniscient, knowing everything, and omnipotent, all-powerful, and ubiquitous, everywhere, present. He is not. Uh, the devil is also a, creation, a part of creation, 
fully under the dominion of our Heavenly Father. When Jesus was here, He could speak a word and demonic powers were cast out. For He was the light and they are the darkness and light always dispels the darkness. He is a powerful enemy, but He's under the control of God. And to try to think of the evil one as being equal to God diminishes the glory and the majesty and the power of God. So that's, that's superstition. We've got to know that we can be at peace. No anxiety. No anxiety in this world because we know that the creator of the universe has given his spirit to us. Amen? But now let's get to the substitutions. When we get to the substitutions, we talk to most people in the 21st century, at least in the Western world, because we, we, we don't live as if we really believe in anything like that. And even with all the things that are out there, if there are other forces like witches and things, they're all good, of course. And, of course, we usually treat the devil as if the devil were this fairy tale character, you know, red and, and a long tail and horns and, and a pitchfork. So we can make it a matter of ridicule because we really seem to live as if the only things that are real are what we can get at with our scientific method. And, by the way, this last Thursday I had the privilege of having breakfast with a, a physicist who's a professor at Oxford University. And I sat down across from him, and um, he asked what I did. I said, well, I'm here teaching theology. Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, he said. Um, and I could tell he almost became defensive because he wanted to talk about ultimate realities, how we can find out what is ultimate, ultimately real. And he says, I think most people think that physical scientists like me uh, don't believe that there are any realities other than what we can get at with our discipline. But he said, don't believe that. He said, here at Oxford University, those teaching in the faculty, I think all of us know that there are things that are very real that we cannot get at with our specific scientific discipline. We believe that. Now, you gotta remember, he wasn't a Christian. I'm, I'm already calling him a not yet, but I think soon to be Christian. That's what, that's what I think. And he, then he threw this in. He said, I really think there are probably more Christians here in the natural sciences than there are in the, the humanities and the social sciences. Uh, just for what it's worth. We have a lot of scientists here. They're the ones applying. Now, back to substitious people. Okay. Most of us since the Enlightenment have lived, even churchgoers, as if there are only material realities. And what that does, if we go into the battle thinking that the battle is only against uh, normal human kinds of things, it will leave us unequipped for the battle. Because I found with the battles that most of us face, even churchgoers, we often stop and think, oh, the way to deal with this is only through, uh, through therapy, or with the problem is better law enforcement, better politicians, more lighting, better education, You've read all the sociological studies. How can we deal with all the problems in the world and look at only... Now, I want you to know, because I don't want to put that down, for those who are psychologists and those who are law enforcement officers and in so many of these fields, there is real healing and help to be found in those fields. I believe in what, what theologians call general revelation. That God makes... He's made everything and He makes Himself known in so many ways. And so many times people who don't even know Christ can provide healing and help and hope to people simply because of what they see in the world that God has made and apply it to people's lives. But they can't deal with everything because this material world is not all there is. 
and the battles that we face sometimes have a power behind them that we need the power of God or we will never overcome it. The Apostle Paul said, we battle not only against flesh and blood. You remember him saying that? And that's what Peter is saying here too. He said, there's an adversary that prowls around roaring like a lion getting ready to devour you. Even there, substitious Bible commentators seem to downplay what he's saying. In fact, I read one who said, now, it, it shows you it really isn't anything for you to be worried about because roaring lions aren't, aren't really dangerous ones. Uh, the dangerous ones are the ones who hide, you know, sneak quietly behind a bush. So if they're roaring, it's just saying you don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm telling you, where that guy grew up, I don't know. Um, I was trying to think how to illustrate it. I knew if Albert were here, he would have a visual illustration. Now, he's not here, so you have to imagine it in your mind. So if I took John Stuthers and I just put you up here and then I sealed the whole place off, so that he, and then I let a lion out. See, Albert would do this, wouldn't he? He let a lion out and he came up there roaring and roaring away. John probably wouldn't say, oh, good, he's roaring. There's nothing here to fear. There's nothing here to fear. No, 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 the point isn't being made about whether it's stealth or some other way. It's telling us the power of a lion. And the, the power of a lion means that most of us can't deal with that just in our own human strength. We need some weapons and we need some other people with us. That's what it's getting at. I'm telling you, when a roaring lion comes up, you'd better have somebody there to help you. That's what it's getting at. And he said, that's what it's like. And to the people he loved... Peter said, when you leave the church, you're, you're going to walk into some places where there are difficulties with the world that's one of the great enemies, where you try to live for God and everything in the world will try to make you live otherwise. With your own flesh, you want to live for God, but, you know, we have those enemies too. But beyond them, be alert that there's someone ready to devour you. And by that, I'm so sure what he was saying is that some of the people he loved and cared about we're going to be facing a point very, very soon where they had to make a decision. Would they renounce their faith or would they be put to death? So he says, be alert. Resist the devil. How, you say. Um, silver crosses that we pull out of our purse. Magic incantations, pouring salt on the people as they come by. I mean, how do we do it? Well, throughout the Bible, there are a number of ways. And what we've seen today, a part of it is what we do here. We need a church family to pray with one another and to stand together. And we need to come into church regularly so that we can be reminded that God is sufficient for anything we face. A second thing that the Bible keeps saying is that we need prayer. That when we are people of prayer... It is something that equips us because we know God is there for whatever we face. But I want to show you specifically what Peter gets at. The basic way that the Bible tells us to resist the devil is to deal with our own sin. That it is through our sin that we open the door for evil to be at work within us. And um, if you don't see that in the text, verse 8, he says, Be controlled and alert. And at the end of that, he will, in verse 9, resist him, talking about the devil. But I want you to see what leads up to it. And it begins up there in um, all of you in verse 5. All of you, now clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It flows right into be controlled and alert. Resist the devil. He talks about pride and anxiety. Do you see it? Why? Well, I was, trying to th- I was talking with Albert about this this week. And he told me that there was an article in Field and Stream given to hunters. And so I went to find it. I, so I went online and I was able to pull it up. Now, this, I hope you aren't squeamish. This is going to be the PG-13 part of the sermon. So um, what, what he talked about there is kill zones that every animal has and they're different in every animal. And, and it's, it's such a, so great. They put illustrations of this saying that every animal has, a, and a good hunter, if you're going to be efficient in the hunt, you know how you can kill that animal most effectively and efficiently. For a deer, it's not in the heart. Most people think you have to shoot in the heart. It's above the heart, and not this angle, and it would show you not this angle, but that angle. And then for a bear, it's not the same place because its hide's so tough and its bones are so strong. It has to go somehow through the lungs, but not through this angle. It has to go through this angle. Now, why am I bringing up this illustration? Because I am telling you, the devil knows our vulnerable spots. You and I coming here, we know some of our vulnerable spots, those places where we give in and where we weak, are weak, don't we? The Bible consistently tells us it's in those vulnerable places that the devil can be prowling in and gain access to us. And if we say, well, which ones are they? He says there are two of them that sort of embrace all of them, and that is pride and anxiety. There's another place in Ephesians 4 where he says unresolved anger uh, gives the devil a foothold into our lives. But really unresolved anger is just another side of pride, isn't it? There's something somebody has done to me and we won't let it go. It just becomes a cancer in our lives. And so we're not going to give that thing up and ask God to do whatever he will with it. It's, it's the same sort of thing. Now, as Peter quotes the book of Proverbs, you will see that what he's talking about is not trusting God. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So that, that pride is in opposition to really believing in God's grace. Now I know as you read this, pride and anxiety seem like such two different things. But I want you to think about it. How different are they? Pride is thinking, I don't really need God's grace. I can do this thing. Anxiety is thinking, I don't know if I really believe in God's grace or if it's sufficient for my problems. Both of them are denying the, the sufficiency of the grace of God and trusting Him so that we can be at peace no matter what we face. So I think I've written it here for you. Pride is the kind of self-centeredness that thinks that it doesn't really need the grace of God. Anxiety is the kind of self-centeredness that thinks that God's grace isn't sufficient for my problems. Because I'll tell you, when we don't believe in the grace of God, when the things come, we, become, we fret, we worry, we take it on ourselves, we go into it, and when we fail, we think it will never be different. And what he says is, when you go, trust in the goodness the power, the sufficiency, and the grace of God. Be alert. When you go out, there is a real enemy, and your main vulnerability points are your pride and your anxiety. And so what he calls you and me to on a day like this is once again that intentional act of faith. 
And the way he puts it there is cast it upon the Lord. You notice? Cast everything, all your anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you. It's almost like let's just take it all out of there. All those things that you think you don't want to give to God. All those things that you are worried about. Put them right out on the table. And it's a fishing metaphor for those of you who like fishing. It says put a hook right in that thing and you cast that and give it to God and don't take it back again. Trust in His grace. Trust in His power. Trust in His sufficiency. John Piper put it this way. Pastor in the Minneapolis area. This call to humility is not a popular human trait in the modern world. It's not touted in the talk shows or celebrated in valedictorian speeches or commended in diversity seminars or listed with core values. And if you go to that massive self-help section of B. Dalton's or Barnes & Noble, you don't find books on humility. Have you ever seen the book uh, Humility and How I Achieved It? Now, Peter Wagner, I found out, did write a book on humility, but I don't carry it over there, I don't think. Well, they, they need to. But, but uh, he goes on, the basic reason for this is not hard to find. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. When God goes, humility goes. In fact, you might say that humility follows God like a shadow. We can expect to find humility applauded in our society as often as we find God applauded, which means almost never. When we're in the presence of God, then we know who we are and humility follows. When we're in the presence of God, we know that those things that we're anxious about are things not great in comparison to the power of God so that we cast them upon him. So Peter says, be alert. Resist evil by being aware that our pride and anxiety will just give access to evil. And as Peter indicates all through the letter, this facing of battles and trials is a part of following Jesus, living his way in a fallen and imperfect world. And he says, do you see at the end of verse 9, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. I just have to tell you, I know our time is gone, but I just have to tell you this. Last week, I had an unexpected privilege. Um, even while I was teaching and trying to get ready for this sermon, I was contacted by one of the leaders of the house churches in China. You know, there's going to be a big congress of Christians all over the world gathering. It's called the Lozan Congress on World Evangelism in Cape Town, South Africa in October. And uh, um, they've asked me to write the script for the China Night video presentation. So I, I gladly said I, I wanted to do this as they sent me what the, the visuals would look like and then they sent me the information that they wanted to have in the script. And I would read it and just begin to weep because the things that they were rejoicing in is those who had walked with Jesus among their people before they had ever come on the scene. They took me all the way back to the Boxer Rebellion in 1900 and how many were beheaded and, and, and their lives were taken uh, because of their faith in Jesus and they would not renounce their faith. And they carried us all the way through the 20th century and how even when communism and totalitarianism set in and made the, the gatherings illegal, God's people continued to grow and, and to meet uh, in those times. And again, many were imprisoned and many were put to death for their faith. And he says, still today... 
I can't even... I wish. Still today, he said, there are so many here in China who are taking up their crosses and following Jesus. And you know what's happening? Because of that, people are seeing the reality of Christian faith among those who say, this is my life, so that the church in China is growing faster than the church has ever grown in the history of the church. Because people are seeing something that is real. And then on Thursday, I got an email from this friend of mine in China, as well as from one of our church members, Min Shigematsu. I know that sounds Japanese, but she's from China originally, before she married John. And they had watched a a Chinese national television broadcast in which uh, the government had sent some of their leaders into these house churches because they're growing so fast, they were afraid that they might do damage to the country and to the government of uh, the community. And on national television... One of their leaders said this as the interviewer was talking with the leader. Um, We probably shouldn't try to do away with the church because the commitment level of the people is so deep that we probably can't do it anyway. And what we all were able to see is that these Christians are wonderful citizens. They're benefits for our community. So why would we want to do it? Doesn't it sound like First Peter being lived in our day? So if we go out of here and face a few trials, remember that our brothers and sisters are doing it and finding God to be sufficient, and may you do so as well. So what he's saying is, the evil one will gain a foothold so that the work of God will, will be threatened. He'll grain it into our church with self-centered or faithless leaders. It's it's our vulnerability as leaders. And and he'll gain a foothold into our church through disgruntled, complaining, proud, and anxious church attendees. Notice I put more words there. (laughs) But you've got to know that if it's the unity and love of the body of Christ that demonstrates that we belong to Jesus, then it's the disunity of the body of Christ that will make people think it's not real. And then in your individual life, you will gain a foothold into your life through your pride and anxieties. And so I've got to ask you, what anxieties do you need to just cast on him this morning? What did you bring to church? This is sometimes a very hard world to live in. And so you've come here so that you can hear something from God to breathe in, knowing his sufficiency. What is it you need to give to him? I ask you even today to simply give that to him and say you will trust him. You will trust him to be good. You will trust him to be sufficient. And you will wait upon him until you see his goodness. And with that, we come after all these months to the end of 1 Peter. But before we do, we have to look at his last words, verses 10 and 11. He tells us that it's worth it to go through these trials for the cause of Christ. He starts almost like he began. He began, praise be to the God and Father, even in the midst of this hard world, praise who has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember that? And he ends in a very similar way. And he reminds them that God will give them all that they need if, he, if they trust him. And it sounds so much to me like one of the first sermons I ever preached to you. 
You remember the sermon from the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2? That was one of these churches in Turkey that Peter was writing to. And, and uh, the message would say, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. It's where it's really hard to live as a Christian. And yet he'd say, some of you, some of you are faithful to the name of Jesus. It's a great commendation. And then at the end, he says, those who are faithful will receive two wonderful things. It's supposed to really pick them up. So here it is. You get hidden manna and a white stone. Well, you've responded just the way you did the first time I preached the message. Woo-hoo. Is there anything else in that catalog that God might give me? You know, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what they are. Hidden manna, do you remember? Uh, it's from the Old Testament. Uh, hidden manna. On, on the night when they went to sleep, they had nothing to eat. How would they have anything for the next day? The next day they'd wake up and there was the manna. They didn't see it coming. They didn't know how they would find it. God provided. God provided. And it's what I have experienced in my many years of walking with Jesus again and again and again. Tough times. How is this going to work? What's going to happen? And then God breaks in. Sometimes it's in a church service, a message as if the, the pastor were preaching just to me. And I hear it, and I'm renewed and encouraged, and I say thank you. Sometimes it's somebody who comes around us when we have no resources left. Remember I told that when I only had a bag of frozen spinach left and no money left? I, you may not have remembered that. That was when I was a college student. And then these friends invited me to supper, which was great. And as I got out of the car, they handed me two bags of groceries saying, well, we thought you might need this. How did they know? I don't even like spinach. That's all I had left. It's hidden manna. It is hidden manna that God provides. And you have to trust Him to do it. That's what He says. And a white stone is even better. The white stone is what the emperor would give to just a few people who did something, some act of service for the emperor. If you had the white stone, it gave you entrance into any place in the Roman kingdom. So if it were here, you could come to church and you say, have a white stone. They say, oh, you get to sit on the front row. If you took it to the Staples Center, I better keep going on this one. If you took this to the Staples Center, they would first say, you can't get in, you don't have a ticket. You say, I don't have a ticket, but you know, I have this white stone. Oh, they would say, come in. Now, do you want to sit next to uh, Paul Gasol or you want to sit next to Kobe? Because if you have the white stone, you get to the best place. Why this? It's because I tell you, brothers and sisters, our God is not a spoil sport. And if He allows us to go through trials for a little while... It's going to be worth it. And the joy and the shalom that it will lead into will be something that will make us throughout eternity. Say, thank you, Lord. And that's exactly what Peter ends with. Look at this benediction. After all of this teaching over all of these months, I want you to hear these words and allow this word of God to penetrate deep into your being and into your soul. What does he say? And the God of all grace who called you who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while he will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen.
to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that I've been faithful to your word. And I pray that we have had ears to hear it throughout this series and especially today. We all know that when we go out of these doors, we sometime soon will face some battle to live for you, to speak of you. But Father, we don't go alone. You've given us to one another. So Father, wherever there is lovelessness in our church, bring us to repentance. Where I as pastor or we as spiritual leaders lead with pride or lethargy, without gratitude, forgive us, Father. Give us a a deeper and deeper love for your flock, a deeper and deeper gratitude for the privilege of being a pastor. Father, where things happen in our church that those who come just know aren't perfect, Father, help them to speak that we might become more of what you would have it to be, but Father, give them hearts responsive to you and and to the leadership placed here so that we may walk together. And as we walk together out of this church gathering into the battle, we know that we have to face those huge enemies of the world systems that are so different in their values from yours, of our own human flesh that isn't perfect yet. We keep giving in. And now even of the devil who is trying to devour us. But Father, you are with us and you are greater than any of those things. And so we take this time even now to cast everything upon you. Knowing that you care. And telling you, Father, that we, by your power and by your grace, will walk with you until we see. Until we see as you see. In the name of Jesus. Amen.